thanks for coming out this morning. Uh, my name is Matt Laidlaw. Um, all you really need to know about me um, is about half my life, uh, the past 20 years, um, I've devoted uh, to trying to do my best to care for people, especially young people, and usually through the lens of trying to make sense uh, of what on earth the Bible is and how on earth uh, we should read it together. Um, through uh, some traveling, through exposure to scholarly research, through some unlikely mentors, and through the prophetic voices of young people that I've had the privilege of working with and serving, um, all of that has culminated for me into this uh, continued passion for helping people understand what the Bible is and how on earth we might read it together. Um, so that's why I'm here this morning, because I want to talk a little bit about that. Uh, but something brought each of you here. So I just want to start with a question, since it is 9 a.m. and it's Friday morning, and some of us look a little sleepy, uh, maybe me included. Uh, what problems, obstacles, and or struggles are you currently facing in your own relationship with the Bible? I want you to think about that for a second, and I want you to turn to one or two people next to you and just, you know, hash this out. We're going to just take like three minutes on this because I've got about seven hours of content I want to get through in the next 55 minutes, okay? So, what problems, obstacles, and or struggles are you currently facing in your own relationship with the Bible? Ready, set, go. Alright, 
So, um, the title is How We Read the Bible, um, because very simply, I am convinced that how we read the Bible um, is more important than ever. And here's what I mean by that. I think that for many of us, uh, the way we were introduced to the Bible, uh, the curriculums that we encounter, uh, the communities where we serve, the churches that we're a part of, um, we tend to focus on the what questions of the Bible. What is the Bible? What do you believe about the Bible? What do you believe the Bible actually says? And what is lost in that is the question of how. Because how we read the Bible has to exist in dynamic tension of what we believe the Bible is and what we believe uh, the Bible actually says. And if we're not paying attention to the how, we don't realize how we actually got to the what in the first place. Uh, Jesus, in Luke chapter 10, you're familiar with this story, I'm sure. Uh, the beginning of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, Jesus has this interaction. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? The expert in the law comes to Jesus and says, what? He has a what question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus takes that question and expands it. He pulls it apart a little bit. He doesn't just say, well, what does the Bible say about this? He says, what is written in the law and how do you read it? Jesus takes this question and gives dignity to the reality that there is always interpretation involved in the process of what the Bible says. It's not just what is written in the law. It's, well, it's, it is written right there. But how do you read it? Um, a pastor that um, I know uh, in Grand Rapids, actually, um, one of the more uh, theologically conservative pastors that I know, um, uh, serves at a really traditional church. Um, I was listening to him give a talk one time, and he, he said this, and it actually shocked me, because um, I hadn't thought about it this simply, and I was surprised to hear him say it. The Bible <coughs> doesn't says anything. The Bible doesn't says anything. What does the Bible say? Nothing. Unless we're also asking, how do you read it? I am convinced that our culture um, <laughs> at large <laughs> in our country right now and I see uh, spring up in many of our churches, in communities, this fixation on the what. What do you believe about it? What do you believe that it says? And if your what isn't the same as mine, then we can't be in community together. With no acknowledgement that there is a how, that there is a relationship, that there is a process that throughout church history, throughout the history of the Jewish people, there has always been this dynamic reality around, well, how do we read it? How do you read it? How do I read it? How do we make sense of this together? Part of my work um, over the past few years, in some really simple ways, has been to try and figure out how to expand the imagination with young people uh, and with communities to get a little bit outside of just the what. It's not just as simple as what does it say? Because there's also this how question. And many of us, many, many of us who've been trained in teaching the Bible, we don't realize that we've maybe only been taught one specific how. Without recognizing that there has always been this larger community of interpretation that has existed throughout church history, that there's been multiple <coughs> House. So then we have to decide that either there's no diversity in the body of Christ at all, or some like sort of weird-looking body that's just made out of feet or something, right? Like, because there's only feet in the body of Christ, feet like me. There's no hands, there's no ears, there's no... Do you see, see this weird thing that I'm, I'm trying to say here? Okay, it's early. I don't know if that makes sense. But <laughs> there's either no diversity in the body of Christ, we're the only ones who got the what right, and it's too bad that everybody else has missed it, or might be wrong, or might be an enemy of God, or, geez, man, probably is even going to hell. Luckily, our little group of people got the what right. It's either that, or this gentle, generous, courageous step towards um, a broader perspective on how we actually engage.
your survival. Looking at the how in relationship with the what. So uh, I'm also convinced that this sort of like, if your what isn't the same as my what, um, without any exposure to the how, um, is part of why, according to research by the Fuller Youth Institute, 50% of the young people that grow up in our youth groups walk away from the church shortly after they graduate from high school. They might not even be able to articulate why, but that concrete, black and white, your what has to be the same as my what, there's not room for any disagreement or question, and maybe even no exposure to the possibility of the process and the conversation in the how and the tension and the generosity that can exist in the how do you read it sorts of conversations, causes them to say, I might not even know why, but I don't want anything to do with this thing. This book, um, in some small way, is my attempt uh, to try and expose young people and youth workers to a few more hows. So um, it's definitely not comprehensive, it's definitely over-reductionistic, but it's my attempt to be as, as practical as possible to say, hey, maybe there's, uh, what if we had a book that wasn't just about what the Bible says, but just had a few chapters on different ways of encountering what it says that would invite us into some different hows. So how, should we, how could we read the Bible? Just like a book, we read it like a book. Um, what if we read it as commands, something that was asking for us? What if we read it as land, incarnational, physical? What if we, what if we read it as a way, an invitational way of life? What if we read it um, as a story? Um, what if we read it as a wrestling match that we're in a relationship with? What if we simply read the Bible as prayer? Now, I don't have time to like, dig into all of this, um, but my hope is that uh, in this session we can just sort of expand um, the possibility, or at least name some things that, we're, that some of us have been feeling about, hey, aren't there more hows? <laughs> um, or isn't there something missing in just the, the what conversations? So uh, before we uh, drill into a couple of these, um, I want to do some naming around uh, the hows that have sort of worked their way into church, youth group, Bible instruction, curriculum, small group stuff, whatever. Um, that maybe we're not even aware of. Uh, two of the most common hows that I think are sort of just like implicitly hovering around conversations around the Bible. Um, and um, I'm definitely going to do some like straw manning here, right? Um, and I'm, so I'm asking you to assume the best and um, be as generous as possible. But we only have, only have so much time and I want to make a couple of, of strong points about this, okay? So no uh, burning at the stake or angry blogging or whatever. Um, but whatever. Um, okay. When it comes to how we read the Bible, um, I think there's two hows um, that have worked their way in everywhere. Here's the first one. When it comes to how we read the Bible, there is the be like King David model. We read the Bible, and we're just supposed to be like the people in it. Be a leader like King David. Build walls like Nehemiah. What ark is God asking you to build? So we read the Bible essentially like it's just this book of people that we're supposed to be like. Are you familiar with this? Have you seen like curriculum on this or heard sermons like this or even give, I've given sermons like this, right? Like just, we're just supposed to be like King David. That's, that's how we read the Bible. Look for people and be like them. Second, here's ten verses on why you shouldn't do drugs. <laughs> <laughs> or have sex, or whatever, whatever problematic behavior you want to take. So we take text, um, and we boil it down to some sort of principle um, to meet a very a specific need. This is like the classic like proof texting model of how we read the Bible. Um, often we start with a sin issue, a problem, um, which starting with a problem is always problematic anyway when we're talking about trying to be generative, creative, restorative, redemptive people in the world. But when we start with a problem, a sin issue, and then we just take the right verses and we're supposed to apply them to our lives. So in this scenario, the Bible's sort of like WebMD, right? Like, just type in your, sin, your, symptom, your symptom and see what verses get spit back out at you, okay? Um, or sometimes the Bible's just sort of like our meds in the morning, right? Um, we just need our fix. Like, we just need something to get us through the day to face the problems, the sins, the struggles that we're having. Um, so in this scenario, the Bible, uh, you could say, is a bit like a handbook, science book, encyclopedia. So I think the two hows that are just there, um, often, is read the Bible like it's a book of people we're supposed to be like, or 
Uh, read the Bible like it's a science book, handbook, field manual, encyclopedia to get your verses for the day. Are you, are you familiar with these models? Um, now, uh, I think that these are very beautiful attempts to be faithful to the text. I think these are beautiful attempts to be faithful to the young people that we're working with. I'm also saying that there are a lot of different hows when it comes to how we read the Bible. So I'm not saying they're all bad or that these two are bad. What I am saying is that these two are there. We don't even usually recognize it. We jump right to the what. And there's probably some hows that are better than some of the hows uh, that are just sort of implicitly in the way we encounter the text. So um, I want to take these two to the woodshed for a minute, all right? Um, because I think they're lacking. I think there's some better hows. Um, and from my perspective, uh, here's how I think they're lacking. First, uh, the Be Like King David in 10 verses on uh, why you shouldn't do drugs are radically inconsistent. How do you know when you're supposed to be somebody, be like somebody or not? Just because the teacher said, or the small group leader, or the youth group leader, or the pastor said? So I'm supposed to be like King David. That's awesome, right? He's the king of Israel. Uh, he's a man after God's heart. He wanted to build God a house. It's amazing. Uh, he also abandoned his troops at war, um, seduced or raped a woman and had her husband murdered. Um, so, like, when am I supposed to be like King David? Or just when you tell me I'm supposed to be like King David or not? Second, uh, it's super individualistic. These two methods emphasize the individual over the community, which I would say is definitely like what we've experienced in Christianity in our lifetimes, but it is not historic Christianity. Communal reading of the text was the way that the Bible and in interaction with the Word of God was birthed. It was always in community, and how we got to like just do your personal quiet time and find your verses in the morning is just beyond me, and that's not bad. I'm just saying that it's no wonder that we say things like stale, time, confusing. I'm not sure because maybe we've taken something that was born in an entirely different context and we're trying our how isn't actually working as well as we maybe have been promised or it's been prescribed to us. Um, have you ever been in like a sort of awkward small groups maybe in your, well, I don't know if that's even a sentence that makes sense. I guess I just sort of think of awkwardness when I think of small groups, which probably says more about me than anything else. Like it's hard. Um, and you sort of like read a verse, and everybody just sort of says like what they think. And it's not like a spirit, like a sort of a group spiritual listening or group spiritual direction model. It's just sort of like we're going to read this verse, and then I'm going to sort of just project all of my problems and questions onto it one at a time, and then we're all going to sort of look at each other and eat pie. Right? Have you been in like situations like this, right? So it's become so individualistic that we don't actually know how to experience it in community. Third, uh, it ignores problematic texts. These two houses ignore problematic texts. Have you ever been reading the Bible and like uh, read something and thought, nobody has ever freaking told me this before? I have never read this before. There's a lot of genocide in this book. What about sexuality? What about sacrifice and blood and guts and animals? What about the treatment of women? What about contradictions? What about stuff that when you put it next to each other, it just doesn't make sense? What about like the weird characters? Like nobody said, be like this person. It was always King David, but like, what do we do with these people? They're strange and their stories don't even add up. Um, years ago, uh, the church I was a part of, one of the things that um, was really beautiful about this church getting started was they were working really hard to sort of write and experience original worship music in the And somebody in the community had written this beautiful song out of Hosea chapter 6. Um, and I, it's beautiful, and we sang it a lot. And I re just remember it. it the, come let us return to the Lord. Come sinners heal. The place is sin has torn. His justice true, but his mercy sure. He will cover us in love. Like a spring rain falling, God will come. Like a spring rain falling, God will come. I'm getting like, just a lot of nostalgia in the beginning, but I'm getting like, shiv like shivers, like saying, it's so beautiful, and written right out of Hosea 6. Except for one time during church, I turned to Hosea 6, 
And those words were like verbatim out of the passage, except for it said, Come, let us return to the Lord. He will tear us to pieces. That didn't make it into the song. (laughs) And understandably so, but especially with young people, if they actually try and read it like we're begging them to and shaming them for, if they don't, they're going to find that. And they're going to say, this doesn't make sense. This how doesn't work. Uh, Fourth, uh, these... uh, Two hows emphasize sin management and behavior modification. Um, Gospel sin management is a phrase uh, that the philosopher Dallas Willard uh, coined like 25 years ago. And he he basically says like somehow Protestants and evangelicals have taken the best news the universe uh, has ever heard and boiled it down into a formula to help us just manage our sins a little bit better. Here's your verses to like, you know, not lust as much. Here's your verses on how to have a few... Few, uh, few less beers at the end of the week. Here's your verses on being a better dad or mom or whatever. Um, is that the best news the universe has ever heard? Is to just help us manage our problem behaviors a little bit more? And especially when it comes to young people, then we've taken this good news and we've just made it all about sort of conforming them in, into something which can feel uh, less than invitational and sometimes even violent or oppressive to them. Behavior modification doesn't uh, invite transformation. So if we're going for, just don't do drugs while you're in high school, here's your 10 verses, fine. But again, what happens as soon as they walk out of that high school building or out of that youth group? I'm almost done ruining these two methods, I promise. Just a couple more, okay? Um, Doesn't stick. Be like King David. Here's your 10 verses on why you uh, shouldn't do drugs. for me, is like continuing to give young people fish without teaching them how. Because they just need somebody to give them their verses. They just need somebody to tell them who to be like. And it doesn't invite them into a dynamic relationship with the text. Um, this was probably six or seven years ago. Um, this like doesn't stick phrase comes from the Fuller Youth Institute and some of the research they've done on faith formation. And one of the big things that very practically some of my colleagues see was really need to do some intentional relational work around the transition out of high school and into the post-high school experience starting junior year. And one of those things that we did was we had what we called a post-high school retreat. Six weeks after kids graduated, they were invited to a free, like, 36-hour experience where we just played and had fun and just opened up conversations about whatever they wanted to talk about once they were, like, sort of through the gauntlet of graduating from youth group and high school. Um, and we gave them sort of a guided solo time experience, and one of the things was just like, on this note card, just like write down like whatever questions you have. Um, and then they came back, and we filled this whiteboard with all their questions. It was super interesting like, to see, even in that short amount of time, how their perspective and relationship with us had changed, like, because they're like adults now, like they're out of high school. Um, but one of the, the kids who was brilliant, uh, going to a tech school in Chicago, graduated top of his class, his question was, I'm just afraid I'm not going to be able to make it in college. And we sort of pressed him, well, what do you mean by that? He said, well, I mean my faith. What do you mean by that? I just don't know where the verses are about how to make it through college. And I felt like, like, what have I even been doing with this kid for four years, right? Like, if he thinks there's verses about college in the Bible... And, what is he thinking, like, Laidlaw didn't give them to me, like, and then we're having this retreat, and he's still not giving me my college verses, like, why is Laidlaw holding out on me? Um, but it was just this moment where I realized, like, oh, Casey, we've been giving you maybe even really good fish for four years, we never showed you how, and you still think this is how the Bible is supposed to be engaged. Uh, sixth, and this came up uh, in our sort of initial warm-up often supports an agenda. And young people can sniff this out so much more intensely uh, than I think those of us who are older. We can make the Bible say whatever we want. If we read it for people to be like, if we read it looking for our ten verses, it will always support our agenda, our tradition, our ego, or whatever sort of power structure we're trying to keep in place, or whatever behavior we're trying to get them to conform to. And young people know it. They absolutely know it. Uh, the example that like just haunts me <laughs> in this scenario, um, and there's been 
plenty more the past few years. Um, but I think this was about 10 years ago. Uh, you remember uh, Mark Sanford, I think he was the governor of South Carolina, got sort of wrapped up in this scandal. Um, he was just like disappearing for days at a time. I found out he was um, having an affair um, with somebody either in Central or South America. I don't remember the whole story. It was this whole scandal, uh, misuse of funds. Um, of course, he had run on sort of like a moral platform, and that wasn't much of a platform anymore. Um, and uh, there was calls for his resignation. He went to the press conference and he said, King David was allowed to continue as king after his affair. I should be able to continue to be the governor of South Carolina. I don't know how young people don't look at that and say, really? <laughs> like, that's what you want me to give my life to? That's what that story is about? And, and that's what this, this, like, it's propping up this person's moral, political agenda publicly, and people are rallying behind it and supporting it. That's what the Bible is. That's how we're supposed to do it. We're able to make the Bible say whatever we want. And last, um, I'll say it again, it's where we started. Um, there is a bit of a lie that we tell about objectivity. The, the Bible says the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. The Bible doesn't says anything. It is a book that demands to be interpreted, interacted with, and experienced in dynamic relationship in community with others. The Bible is capable of generating multiple readings, multiple interpretations, sometimes contradictory, sometimes confusing, all of them may be literal, and we have to decide whether or not we're just the few that got it right, or there might be a broader way of experiencing it. Be like King David, here's ten verses on why you shouldn't do drugs, um, are lacking significantly in these ways, and I think our young people know it. How are we reading the Bible? Often, this people are supposed to be like. Handbook, science book, encyclopedia. So, is this a book worth dying for? Are these methods the best news the universe has ever heard? Is this worth six to twelve thousand dollars a year in tuition for <laughs> young people? Or two hours of volunteering with young people on a Sunday night at a church youth group? Again, well-intentioned. I don't think all wrong. Maybe not the best house. So, um, you want to play around with some other house? Does that feel okay? Okay. Um, let's do story. Is that okay? Okay. So, um, how might we read the Bible if we were going to read it as story? First, uh, so I'm going to give a little, like, some methods and values here around how to read the Bible as story. So, if anything I say in this hour is worth writing down, now would be the time, I think, to write down some practical things. Uh, if we're going to read the Bible as story, I want to propose that the Bible is a story and God is the main character. So again, like, we, we jump to what, right? Like, what is the Bible? It's a story. God is the main character. But we didn't get to that what until we started asking some how questions. So I'm not saying what isn't important. I'm not saying that beliefs don't matter. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be answering the what questions. I'm just saying we have to be doing it in relationship with the how. And that art has been lost. So, how do we read the Bible? How about a story? Okay, it leads to another what? The Bible is a story, and God is the main character. Uh, the philosopher Abraham Heschel has this awesome sort of riff on, is the Bible uh, man's theology, or is it God's anthropology? Is the Bible man's words about God, or is the Bible God's words about man? And he just resolves it with, like, yeah. Yeah. Is, is, which one is it? Yeah, of course. Yes. Um, this, of course, is sort of like uh, God's response to Job, right? Like, in the midst of all of this suffering, it's this sort of like, let's just zoom out a little bit and recognize what this massive story is about without minimizing the, the tragedy and the suffering that Job has experienced. Like, hey, Job, you are some, about something much, your life is about something much bigger than your own individual story. If God is the main character, then I'm not. 
If God is the main character, then you're not. If God is the main character, then your students and our young people aren't. Uh, Donald Miller, uh, I think is in his book, A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, he has this awesome quote where he just like has this experience and he says, um, in that moment I realize I'm a tree in a story about a forest. Um, or maybe if I was going to put some words into uh, Abraham, uh, you know, Genesis 12, Abraham's mouth, maybe he would say, I realized I'm a grain of sand in a story about a beach. Or I'm a star in a story about the universe. If we're going to read the Bible as story, how we read it, we have to start with this reality that the story is about God. God is the main character. Next, the question we need to ask is, what is the big story of the Bible? So again, the how of reading in a story leads us to what? Another what question, which is good. Those things have to live attention. What is the big story of the Bible? And when it comes to reading the Bible as story, uh, this is, I think, often an overlooked question in interpretation. Because how you understand the big story of the Bible is going to determine what the little stories mean. Just as much as how you read the little stories is going to determine what the big story actually means. In your version of what the big story of the Bible is, the way you would describe it, how does the story start? How does the story end? What happens in between? What does it mean? And if we can't answer that sort of meta question about what the big story of the Bible is, then of course we're going to have trouble making sense of these little stories. So I'm talking real fast, so we've got a little bit of time. Let's actually do this, okay? Um, with maybe three people, Take four minutes, and in your own way, give, like, come up with the 30-second version of how you would answer this question. What is the big story of the Bible? Okay?
really quickly, three of them. Who wants to share? What's your 30s? 15 to 30 second version of what the big story of the Bible is. Yeah. The story of the, the creation of the earth, the fall of man, the redemption through Christ, and the eventual restoration, and all the little stories point towards the big story. Okay. Thank you. Go over here. Nice the and loud. Story of love. Story of love. God made us out of love. He rescued us out of love. We run away from him. He won't let us leave him. Yeah. So uh, what I uh, have my students do on first uh, question of every quiz and test is the question of what is the Bible about? Mm -hmm. um, uh, and my 30-second version of it, my 15-second version... Uh, you already used 12 seconds. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. I preached 45 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 20, 22, uh, the Bible is about the unfolding nature of the kingdom of God. So the great king creates the smaller king to have charge over his creation. Smaller king rebels against the great king. So the great king has to restore um, things back to its original state. And then the great king himself comes amongst us to restore things back better than they were um, in the original creation. That's why we end in Genesis 22. So the kingdom of God. Nice. Thank you. I ignored this side. Is there one on this side? Anybody wants to share over here? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. Nice. Okay. Okay. Uh, for, oh, no. Okay. Talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> Are we back? Yeah. All right. We're back. Okay. Uh, I would highly encourage you that if you want to try and encourage, uh, experience the Bible as a story, invite others to do it, that you need to work on sort of fine-tuning your 30-second version of it, your three-minute version of it, and your 30-minute version of it. Because the more you uh, become aware of how you would articulate it, um, the more you're going to recognize um, how it's impacting the story you're living, and the more you're going to recognize how you're making sense of those small stories in the Bible that we're reading. Uh, for me, um, and this is... Uh, borrowed from N.T. Wright and a few other people, a really simple one uh, has been to sort of like break the, the story into chapters, uh, the big story of the Bible into chapters, creation, fall, Israel, Jesus incarnation, Jesus crucifixion, Jesus resurrection, Jesus ascension, church, and new creation. Uh, for me, like sort of being so Jesus heavy in the center is, I think, that is the climax of the story, but also the lens through which we make sense of what become, what comes before and what, be, uh, what comes after. That's one way of, of articulating the story. It's not the only way. It's been helpful for me. Um, and in this scenario, I tend to think of it like this is like a coat rack with sections and all of the little stories in the Bible, like we just have to figure out like which section of the coat rack we're hanging those little stories on. But what's really important in your 30 second, three minute, 30 minute version of the big story is, is to ask those questions. Where does it start? Where does it end? Where does it climax? How does it unfold? If your version of uh, the big story of the Bible ends with God destroying everything, which is one way that people interpret scripture, that's uh, going to influence every other small story in the Bible because this is where the story is heading. If your story, uh, your version of, of understanding the big story of the Bible starts with sin, Depravity, judgment, shame, if that's the first word of the story, it's going to impact the way the rest of the story unfolds and how you make sense of those little stories. If your version of the big story begins with blessing, goodness, oneness, okay, that's going to determine how the rest of the story unfolds. These sort of big chunks, the word love, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, each of those things matter. Um, and it's how, it's sort of, it's the, it's the coat rack, it's the framework for how we're going to make sense of those smaller stories. So, however you work that out, and this is not the space where we're going to decide, like, whose version of how the story ends is better or best or whatever, um, or which one's right. Um, so, keep working that out. <laughs> I don't know how to use technology. Um, I'm sorry, I always am super annoyed when people have tech problems in a presentation. I'm super annoyed at myself right now. Um, so, keep working that out. 
uh, once you get that worked out, um, there's five sort of values or principles that have been really helpful um, for me to sort of work out with young people. It made its way into some curriculum that we worked with in youth group and that um, sort of retreat and camping settings where we try to look at a text together. Um, once we sort of were able to tell our version of the big story, these five uh, sort of values for reading the Bible as story were helpful. So the first is start with the story. Or start with the story and not you. Or start with the story and not the student. Uh, we have to stop trying to be relevant. The NASCAR study Bible is something that exists. Okay? <laughs> if you are reading it, it's like, God bless you. Like, I'm sorry for picking on you and this work and probably the Jesus-loving man who wrote it. Okay? <laughs> for sure it was a dude. I bet every, everything I own on that. Um, but if it's good news... <laughs> If it's good news, um, if it's the best story, um, the best, uh, the story that we're all living in, whether we realize it or not, we don't need NASCARs on the cover. <laughs> um, we don't need to be relevant. We just have to figure out how to tell it. It's not about any individual one story. And it doesn't mean we minimize the individuals who are part of the conversation. It doesn't mean we aren't empathetic or sympathetic or we don't pay attention to the pain and hurt and suffering in our own lives or in the world or in the stories of our young people. What it means is that we're honest about the ways we are projecting onto the text. And we ruthlessly work to try and allow the story to speak for itself. Start with the story. Not you, not me, not the student. Second, always read the Bible in community. And recognize that you already are reading the Bible in community, even though we're all like turning on the lamp way too early in the morning trying to read Leviticus or whatever because of how you said your emotions in the morning, right? Um, don't read Leviticus early in the morning. Um, always read the Bible in community and recognize that you already are. A group of people decided how to translate those Greek words into English. They had agendas, stories, paychecks, publishers, their own uh, academic researchers who influenced their understanding of those Greek words. People edited the book, the Bible that you're reading, like for 2,000 years, like it's been an ongoing, unfolding work. There are human hands, fingerprints all over it. That doesn't diminish the divinity of the text. But what it does, which it should do, is invite us to recognize that it is not an individualistic endeavor. It's, it's a myth that you could even like read it on your own because it's already been shaped by community, okay? And uh, maybe uh, try to explore some ways, whether it's with students or in the awkward small group or family or on the internet, whatever, um, to just read it together. Read it out loud together and experience the words together. Also, sometimes um, it's hard to read the Bible, so we read books alongside of the Bible, right? That's part of the community that we're already a part of. If you're only reading people that you agree with, if you're only reading people who are part of your tradition, you're probably getting a how and a what that's like fine and beautiful and helpful. Um, but there may be more. And it's also uh, sort of like the world we live in of like the Facebook algorithms of confirmation bias, right? Like we're just getting the news that we want to hear, the things we already agree with, just sort of keeps propping up certain views or convictions um, without giving us a broader perspective. Um, what would it look like to pick out a book by somebody uh, from a different denomination? Um, or a different race or ethnicity? Um, or a different gender? Or from a different part of the world? Um, who also wrote a commentary on um, First Kings, or John, or whatever. Um, or a devotional that has uh, been translated um, out of Spanish into English, so it was born in a different culture. Um, stretch yourself to read the Bible in community, recognize that that's actually what you're already doing, um, and it will begin to expand how you experience the story. Start with the story, always read the Bible in community. Third, always ask, what is this story's place in the big story of the Bible? Whatever your framework is, if you stretch it out a little bit, creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, uh, church, new creation, is this in the fall section? Is this in the Jesus section? Is this in the new creation section? If I was able to like stretch that out in any sort of a map, like, where would I actually locate this small story? Context, like, not just even, like, cultural context and historical context, 
But narratively, where does this fit is so important. And recognize that that small story in some way is pushing the larger story as you understand it forward. None of these small stories exist in isolation. And uh, bonus points, um, is this small story in some way a retelling of the larger story? Um, is this small story sort of like a rabbit trail or a distraction from the larger story? And that's how it, in a big, in a big way, is moving the big story forward? Or is this actually one of those like fundamental, super important, like this big story can't be told without this small story? Play with those questions. Um, play with trying to figure out where it exists on the map. And if you can create an environment where students feel like they can be safe and ask a few questions, they like playing with this sort of thing. Um, when the threat of getting it wrong is sort of removed and imagination and possibility and story is engaged, like the, the stuff that they experience in the Bible is, I mean, it's prophetic. It's no less than prophetic in my opinion because they're able to see and experience things that some of us have been programmed to only see certain things for so long um, that we just can't see it. Fourth, uh, always ask, what does this story, the small story, so if you're reading uh, King David, what's the story's place in the big story of the Bible? What does this story teach me about who God is? Because King David isn't the main character in that story. He's not somebody that we're just supposed to be like. He's not uh, giving us a few proof texts on sexual purity. Um, story about God. What is this story's place in the big story? What does this story teach me about who God is? Fifth. This one's a little bit of a, well, it's hard to spit out and it's tricky. Always ask, what does who God is teach me about my place in the big story? What does who God is teach me about my place in the big story? Because the reason we have like 10 verses on why you shouldn't do drugs and be like King David is because we want to get practical, right? We want application. We want to, we want to know what to do. We want to tell kids what to do. But if we're saying the King David story isn't about King David, and you're, it's not just like for you to be like him, okay, if God is the main character, and the story teaches me something about the character and nature of God in the context of this larger story, okay, if that is the creator of the universe that somehow mysteriously is in relationship with me, and this is where the story is headed to love, or new creation, or the kingdom of God, how do I live out my story in light of that larger story about God? Then it's not like problem behavior, here's your 10 verses. Then it's not like, who am I supposed to be like? It's like, whoa, this is like what I'm a part of? Whoa, that's like what the mystery of the divine is actually like? And here I am, 17 years old in 2019, trying to figure out what college to go to? There are some beautiful possibilities about what faithfulness and obedience and kingdom and love and meaning <coughs> actually look like. Um, I'll end with this uh, example, which is, I think, a much clever way of saying um, what I've been trying to say. Uh, this example uh, comes from N.T. Wright. Um, he talks about faithful improvisations. Are you familiar with this phrase? He uses this example when trying to make sense of the big story of the Bible and interpretation and obedience. He says, let's say archaeologists, historians, um, whatever, discover uh, this beautiful play, previously undiscovered play written by Shakespeare. And it's, it's amazing. Uh, and nobody's ever read it before. The problem is, is that it has six acts, and we're missing act five. Like, it's just not there. You can't find it. But people want to, like, publish this play. They want people to read it. And people want to, like, actually turn it into a production. Like, they want people to experience this, this play, like, in a theater. So what, what, what would we do? Well, we would probably get the best historians in the world to study Shakespeare to study all of Shakespeare's writing, to study all of the characters, to study the nuances, the flow of the big story, where it starts, where it ends, how all of these characters' lives unfold and develop in really unique and beautiful ways. And then, 
Um, with all of that in mind, they would find the most creative, um, most intelligent, uh, most talented writers and playwrights and gather them together and say, we need to figure out how to write Act 5. Friends, I think that's what Christian faithfulness and obedience is. We've been invited into the most beautiful drama um, that we could possibly imagine. We know how the play ends. We know many of the characters. And also, we're one of them. We're characters in this story. So let's study the characters that we have. Let's study the words that we have. And let's creatively and imaginatively together how to write Act 5 to help bring the story to new creation and redemption and restoration together. Um, that's the hope of the world. And I think that how of how we read the Bible can be super compelling and helpful to young people as well. That's what I got. A second, I want to pray for all of you. Um, and the, the other thing I want to say is uh, some of the most talented um, Bible instructors that I know are in this room. Um, so don't miss the opportunity to ask questions of the people sitting around you or to find, all, find the people in this room because we all came to this space for a reason to ask some interesting and difficult questions and we all care about the students that we've entrusted with so much. Um, and there's some amazing talent in this room. So um, don't run out of here to get coffee or drive back home um, before you interact with one another. Um, and if you want to stick around and nerd out on some of this a little bit more, um, we have you. So thanks so much for coming and hanging out. Let me pray a blessing over all of you, if that's okay. Father in heaven, uh, we bless your name this morning uh, for the gift of life, uh, for the beauty of this world, for the mystery of love, for this amazing story um, that you have invited all of us into. Thank you for your frustrating, beautiful, sometimes stale, difficult words. God, I pray that for each of us, we would continue on the path of greater imagination and possibility when it comes to how, um, so that we would better know how to interact with all the different what's in our lives and in our world. God, for the young people um, that we care for, uh, we pray that each of them, no matter where they are, what they're doing right now, that they would experience your shalom, your peace in their hearts. And God, for all the people and the problems that we've all left behind to be here, God, I pray that you would bless them and those situations, and you'd give each of us peace um, as we finish our experience together at this conference today. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray all of these things together. Amen. Thanks, everybody.